Hi, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. So you might have heard, but our friend and colleague Petra Mayer died suddenly a few weeks ago. She was an editor of books coverage on the Culture Desk, which meant she you know, fielded reviews and did interviews and <laughs> made sure I didn't say anything stupid in these intros. We're going to play you just a smidgen of what she had to offer this network in a bit, but all of us at the Books Pod and at NPR have sort of been just processing the news. Actually, one of the last interviews Petra vouched for to run on this platform was this interview between NPR Scott Simon and Sir Andrew Motion, the former poet laureate of the United Kingdom, and they taped it just ahead of Veterans Day. Motion just edited the Folio Book of War Poetry, a collection of poems about war. And Petra, a you know, self-avowed nerd, passionate about a wide variety of things, loved this interview because she was a World War I poetry dork. <laughs> Those are uh, her words, by the way. And, you know, it strikes me that war poetry, by extension, is about loss and grief and mourning. In this interview, Motion reads a poem by Siegfried Sassoon, and it it actually reminds me a lot of Petra. Not, not because she was a soldier or anything like that, but because it's a wry and biting poem critiquing power in this kind of darkly funny way. It's an energy Petra had for as long as I've known her, and one I'm hoping to carry on for her. Give it a listen. The new Folio Book of War Poetry is a collection of works by great poets that depict, as maybe only poetry can, the losses and valor that can be borne by veterans throughout history. As a first-century poem from China puts it, they fought south of the ramparts, they died north of the wall, they died in the moors and were not buried. Your service shall not be forgotten, for in the morning you went out to battle, and at night you did not return. The Folio Book of War Poetry is edited by Sir Andrew Motion, the former poet laureate of the United Kingdom, who joins us from Baltimore, where he's the Homewood Professor of Arts at Johns Hopkins University. Thanks so much for being with us. It's my great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Across all these different civilizations and epochs and time and experiences in this book, what are some of the recurrent themes you see in war poetry? Well, I think mainly what you see is a significant change in attitude over the centuries, I must say, because the poems written are very largely celebrations of male valour. And very often that celebration of individual male valour is intended to combine with some sort of national or nationalistic impulse to defend the homeland, in other words, in some way or other. And that remains more or less constant, I mean, with variations being played on that as a theme for centuries, honestly. But as we come up to the beginning of the 20th century, the end of the 19th century, certain dissenting voices start to make themselves heard. You can even hear, I think, in one of the most famous war poems of all time, Tennyson's poem on the charge of the Light Brigade, Mm -hmm. and its admission that someone had blundered, that there's some sort of fault line opening between the how people are expected to respond on the home front and what it's actually like up there on the front. And by the time that you get to Wilfred Owen, Siegfried Sassoon, Ivor Gurney, and others writing in the second half of the First World War, that note of dissent is absolutely unignorable. Let me ask you to read a Siegfried Sassoon's poem, The General. Well, Sassoon is one of the best two or three known poets of the First World War. It's perhaps worth saying as a way of introducing this. 
And I think, I mean, for my money, the most successful poems that he writes are very often these short-ish, squib-like, seeming poems, which mm-hmm. are savagely satirical, very often, of the people who are in charge of the war, and at the same time as they're very tenderly remembering or shielding those who are actually fighting in it. This short poem is a good example of that. So, the general. Good morning, good morning, the general said when we met him last week on our way to the line. Now the soldiers he smiled at are most of them dead and were cursing his staff for incompetent swine. He's a cheery old card, grunted Harry to Jack, as they slogged up to Arras with rifle and pack. But he did for them both with his plan of attack. These satires are not like anything else that had been written about war before, so it's easy to imagine the kind of shock impact that they had on their early audiences and to a certain extent still on us today. I'm going to read another really set of lyrics that you include here. Julia Ward Howe's The Battle Hymn of the Republic. Yes. And and famously, that song that rallied Union troops in the U.S. Civil War winds up by saying, In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with the glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free. And perhaps we should also note that there have been wars to defeat slavery or to destroy concentration camps, ethnic cleansing in Bosnia that have been seen as righteous. I absolutely don't disagree with that. I mean, I essentially, I'm with Picasso, that, <laughs> who very bluntly said, I'm against war. And I guess most people with their heads screwed on would say the same thing. But one at the same time wants to make a distinction between the kinds of war that have occurred over the centuries and perhaps to make some distinction between those that might be considered just, such as the ones that you mention, and those that seem foolish or foolhardy or based on false premises or less noble intentions. Let me ask you to read a poem by Claude McKay, Jamaican-American writer. Indeed. Perhaps I can say as a lead into this poem that one of the things that I find rather agitating when I was putting this book together was my wish to make it as diverse as possible was very often frustrated by the kind of lack of texts to prove that point or to make that case. I, again, this is something I say a little bit about in the introduction to the book, mm-hmm. but here is one that, uh, an exception proving the rule. If we must die. If we must die... Let it not be like hogs hunted and penned in an inglorious spot, while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain. Then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honour us, though dead. O oh, kinsmen, we must meet the common foe, though far outnumbered, Let us show how brave, and for their thousand blows deal one death blow. What though before us lies the open grave? Like men we'll face the murderous, cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back. It strikes me that's a poem that so many veterans might utter. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's a poem that touches on a great many linked themes too. I mean, themes of racial injustice, as well as themes that are strictly to do with military encounters of one kind or another. Sir Andrew Motion has edited the new folio book of war poetry. Thank you so much for being with us. 
Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Like I said, Petra was big on poking fun at power structures, particularly here at her beloved NPR. But she also put some actual oomph into those words, you know? She was a major part of why our book's coverage isn't just a bunch of uh, white guys with glasses writing quote-unquote literature, you know you know what I mean? She championed writers of color, not just in the books we covered, but in the people we hired to cover them. And she pushed us to cover sci-fi and romance and fantasy and comics and erotic One Direction fan fiction. <laughs> that was a fun piece I worked with her on. Anyway, I want to play you this one piece. Uh, She was actually a reporter on it. It's from back in 2015. It's a profile of the romance author Beverly Jenkins, who is a pioneer of Black historical romance. It aired during what we called Summer of Love, our summer series on romance novels, which you can imagine Petra was a big part of. Here's Petra. Beverly Jenkins calls herself a kitchen table historian. She doesn't have a history degree, but she does have a mission to light up the parts of black history you don't learn in school. You know, we were slaves, brought here as slaves, freed in 65, disappeared from the planet, like to say the Borg took us from the planet for 100 years, and then we're suddenly discovered rioting in Watson in the mid-60s. So I have that whole century that I get to to bring forth, and, and, and I'm proud to do it. Yes, that was a Star Trek reference. Jenkins loves romance, but she says she likes to cleanse her palate with other genres, everything from fantasy to Juno Diaz to books about birds, because sometimes it's hard to write happy endings set during a very unhappy time. Yeah, it's painful. I tell my fans that I do the crying for them. Jenkins put out her first book, Night Song, about a Kansas school teacher and a cavalry officer in 1994. She calls that the summer of black love, because several other African-American romance writers got their start that year. It wasn't easy. Jenkins says publishers liked her work, but they couldn't get their heads around a black historical novel that wasn't based on slavery. Great story, but, great story, but, great story, but they didn't have a box for it. They didn't know what to do with free black people in a, in a black town in Kansas. Kansas? Free black people? Are you kidding me? But Jenkins refused to be discouraged. She's written dozens of books since Night Song and attracted an enthusiastic following, especially online. Her fans refer to her Facebook page as Bevyville. I'm hoping to meet some of those fans here at the Romance Writers of America convention. Jenkins is standing in a huge hotel ballroom set up with tables and stacks of books. Outside, fans wait in line to get autographs from their favorite authors. So it's going to be interesting to see the dynamics of who's here and who's not. I I do notice that you seem to be the only African-American writer in here. I'm the only chip in the cookie. All the other black writers here this weekend, Jenkins says, are at a diversity panel. And then she gives me a look that I wish you could see over the radio. (laughs) <laughs> okay, I'm going to I'm going to stop the tape right there because that is one of the funniest lines I think Petra ever wrote for radio. It's so subtle but so powerful because like I know the look she's talking about and you probably know the look she's talking about. Um so one last thing about Petra I wanted to tell you is that she loved what she loved and she loved talking about it. Back when we were in the office, on more than one occasion, I missed my train from D.C. back home to Baltimore because we were so caught up talking about, I don't know, like Stardew Valley or something. And she especially loved talking to you, the listener. She got joy out of sharing things with you she was excited about, highlighting books and voices you wouldn't hear elsewhere on public radio. 
Half the time when you listen to her recommend a book, you can almost picture her holding the book with both of her hands and shaking it in front of you. She loved these things she talked about and was generous about sharing that love. What I want to play for you now to leave you with is just a bit of her appearance on the podcast Life Kit earlier this year on an episode about getting into sci-fi and fantasy. She was on a panel with a few other people and recommending one of her favorite comfort reads of all time, The Goblin Emperor by Catherine Addison. So this is a lovely mix of kind of high fantasy because there's elves and goblins and there's steampunk elements too because this is a quasi-technological world. There's a mix of technology and magic and religion. There's airships. And basically it is quite a common trope in sci-fi and fantasy. It's kind of a chosen one, right? Uh, we start with our hero. He's a, a half-goblin, half-elf, last-forgotten heir of the elven emperor, and he's been exiled off to the middle of nowhere because he's half-goblin, and he never expects to be anything other than just an exile in the middle of nowhere, and then suddenly a mysterious accident kills his whole family, and he is the emperor. And he has to come to the capital, and he has to find his way, and he has to figure out who to trust and who he can be friends with and how he can be friends with them now that he is an emperor, because that complicates relationships in ways that most of us don't ever have to deal with. And so the main character, Maya, is this enormously sympathetic figure. He's floundering at first, but you watch him find his way, and you watch him figure things out. And on top of that, it's also just a gorgeously built world with sort of the language and the modes of address and the titles that people have are very well thought out and rich and gorgeous. And the prose, again, is lovely. The vision of this imperial city and all the different chambers of the palace where, you know, Maya holds his audiences with people. You can just get lost in the world. It's just a warm, comforting book. I'm not spoiling anything, I think, by saying that it's a warm, mm. comforting book, and, and he does kind of find his way in the end. But for many years, it was a standalone, although this summer, actually, a sequel came out, which is only a sequel kind of in the fact that it exists in the same world. It goes in a completely different direction. But that is The Goblin Emperor by Catherine Addison. The sequel that came out is called Witness for the Dead, I think. Mm -hmm. And they're both just wonderful reads, and you don't have to commit to a story that you are going to fall in love with only to find out that it hasn't ended and might never end. <laughs> it's a lovely, self-contained hug of a book and a great place to start if you're interested in fantasy. That was NPR's Petra Mayer. Petra, we'll miss you. And that's it for this week. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org newsletter books. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Megan Lim and Kelly Wessinger and edited by Petra Mayer, Megan Sullivan, and Taylor Burney. Show elements for this week were produced and edited by Catherine Whalen, Lisa Wiener, Matthew Shurman, Gabriel Dunatov, Rina Advani, Victoria Whitley-Berry, Sarah Handel, Janaki Mehta, and Rose Friedman. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. <laughs>